It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. I helped out with a ministry who reached out to homeless men and you know the majority of these men were addicted to drugs and alcohol and um, for the most part they you know lost their families they became homeless because of their drug addiction and so as I I helped out in this ministry I had many opportunities just to speak with these men and and speak directly towards these addictions that they had and my ultimate goal was you know to encourage them to accept Jesus and leave their drug addiction in the past just to move forward in their relationship with Jesus and find freedom from their addictions and you know when I addressed their drug addiction I, I usually tried a a positive approach I would start by sharing all the things that they would gain if they would just give up the addiction that they had I would tell them how it would bless their family how it would bless them financially since most of them were broke because they spent all their money on drugs how it would bless their health how it would bless their relationships how it would keep them out of prison uh, and so I would start with this positive approach but you know what after doing that, I would get to a point in, in any conversation, and sometimes it would be more than once, where I would just look that man in the eye and I would warn him. I would go from this positive of, you know, if you give up all these things, this is what you're going to get. And I come to that warning of you don't stop. If you continue on in this addiction, you know what? It's going to kill you. You're going to lose everything. You're going to stay homeless and poor, and your relationships are going to suffer. But the biggest thing of all, is it's ultimately going to take your life. You know, when you're speaking with someone with an addiction, I think it's a good start to to have that positive approach and share all the blessings, all the good things that are going to come if they give it up. But you've got to, at some point in time, bring a warning to them of what will happen if they don't change the way in which they're living. Now, the reason I bring this up is because the author of Hebrews, he pretty much addresses the initial readers that he was writing to in a very similar way. Now, their problem wasn't that they had a drug addiction problem. Their problem was that they were considering departing from Jesus to go back to Judaism and the the sacrificial system. And so like a drug addict, they have a very serious problem with very serious consequences. And the author of Hebrews is addressing this problem with a positive approach. He spends the majority of this letter telling them how much greater Jesus is than all the things in Judaism and how great their life would be and how great their life is because of the blessings that Jesus brings to it. But he does because of things in their life and things they were doing in their relationship with Jesus take time to warn them of problems that they had. And the author really feels like he needs to warn them 
in five different areas. And these are the, the different warnings that you see here in the outline of, of the book of Hebrews. First, he warns them to not drift away from Jesus. Second, there's a warning to not doubt Jesus. Third, there's a warning to not decline spiritually in their relationship with Jesus. And this morning here in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to look at the next warning he gives, this fourth warning, which is don't decline or depart, sorry, from Jesus. Now, the reason that the author gives these different warnings, you don't warn someone about something unless they're actually engaging in those things. And so, you know, these readers, their problem was they were doing this stuff. And so he's warning them to stop because they're actually engaging in it. They were drifting away from Jesus and doubting Jesus and declining spiritually in their relationship with Jesus. And now they've gotten to the worst thing of all. They're considering departing from Jesus. You know, if they go and do this, this is going to be the worst thing because it brings the worst consequences. You know, it's one thing to drift. It's one thing to doubt. It's one thing to, to have these problems in your, your spiritual growth. But to depart from Jesus is the most significant and severe of all. And that is why the warning that we see here that the author gives is more significant and severe than all the previous warnings that he has given. Now, in dealing with the problem of considering departing from Jesus, the author doesn't just give a severe warning and then call it a day. He, he addresses this problem by doing three important things. First, he shares a word of warning to not depart from Jesus. And then second, he shares a, a, a word of encouragement concerning what God has done for them in the past. And then third, a word of hope concerning what God can do for them in the future. So we're going to see three great words in the verses we're going to look at this morning. This word of warning, word of encouragement, and word of hope. And it's my hope as we study each one of these verses that all of us would be challenged in the way that the Lord would want. That if we need to be warned in a certain way, the Spirit of God would warn us. If we need to be encouraged, He would encourage us. If we need that hope, He would give us that. And so we're going to start this morning in the same place the author starts. And that's with this word of warning concerning not departing from Jesus. And we see that in verses 26 through 31 of Hebrews chapter 10. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony or two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here in this warning, if you just look at that, there's some severity for sure in this. But you know, it's led to a lot of debates and disagreements among Christians, and really it kind of comes down to this debate that you see in the Bible about whether or not a genuine believer could lose their salvation. But you know, a lot of the conclusions, a lot of the problems that people have with these verses 
can be easily solved if you would just look at them in their context. You see, if you take verse 26 and 27 especially, out of their context, you separate them from everything around them, the verses before, the verses after, the main purpose of why the author wrote this, then those verses are pretty daunting. Let's just read those verses in and of themselves without any context. And it says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So when you look at these verses just by themselves without the context around them, it seems like they're saying, hey, if someone sins willfully after they have received the knowledge of the truth, speaking of the the truth of the gospel, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sins. Instead, they're going to receive the judgment of God, this fiery indignation referring to hell. Now, if that's what these verses were saying, then definitely that would be a pretty scary reality. But I don't believe that's what these verses are saying. And those who do believe it, the reason that they have come to this conclusion is because they are looking in these, at these verses in isolation and not within the context in which they are written. And that's a very dangerous thing to do with any verse in the Bible. You know, lots of times when you, you hear someone make some kind of statement, you're saying that that doesn't really seem to fit what my understanding of the Bible is. And they'll say, well, well, look at this verse. And typically what they're doing is they just take a verse completely out of its context. And that verse alone, when you read it, you go, oh, wow, I, I can see what you're saying. But when you place it back into the context of which it was written and you look at the verses before and after, all of a sudden there's a, a different kind of understanding that you have with those verses. And so whenever we're trying to understand things, we never want to take things out of their context. So the people who view this verse in isolation, they ultimately conclude that if someone sins willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, then for that person, there no longer remains forgiveness. There no longer remains a sacrifice for their sin. All they have now is God's judgment upon them. And one of the main questions that is asked, as you would probably think, is, well, then what does it mean to sin willfully? Because nobody wants to be in that category. If you truly believe that this is saying, if you sin willfully after you've accepted the gospel, you're toast, there's no more forgiveness, then nobody wants to be in this sinning willfully category. And so you have all these definitions of what it means to sin willfully. And some of them are just so far-fetched and absurd because what they're trying to do is make it so that they don't fit in that category, which you understand why. They don't want to be in that category. But the, the leaps they have to go to to try to make it seem like Well, I don't sin willfully, but you know, if we're just honest with ourselves, if that's really just specifically this was a general statement, which we're going to see it's not, every sin almost that we commit is a willful sin. I mean, let's just be real. There's a few sins that we might commit that we're just ignorant of. You know, it's one of those non-willful things that that we do, but those are, are few and far between. The reality is almost every time that you sin, that you lie, that you cheat, that you lust, that you're angry, that you don't love, that you don't forgive. It's a willful choice. It's not like, wow, I don't know how that happened. You know, we are willfully choosing to sin all the time. And so to try to make it like, well, we don't do that, that that's just not the case. Now this question, what does the author mean when he says sinning willfully? That's a good question. And if these people would actually look at the context of the verses, they would realize he actually answers the question in verse 29. 
So if you just take verses 26 and 27 out of the context and you have what's there and you think, oh my goodness, what does he mean by sinning willfully? Well, let's come up with 500 things that he could mean. Well, if we just keep reading, he'll define it for us. And then we don't have to be unaware of what he's actually referring to. It's not this general statement about any willful sin. It's actually a very specific statement about three particular sins <clears throat> Excuse me, that he's addressing that these Jewish believers were guilty of. So verse 29, he's going to def uh, define for us what he means when he says sin willfully. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who has, and here's the definition, trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. So the author's definition for someone who sins willfully is someone who does these three specific things. They trample the Son of God underfoot, they count the blood of the covenant by which they are sanctified, a common thing, and they insult the Spirit of grace. So let's look at what these things mean so we can kind of understand what this author is meaning here. The first way that someone sins willfully is they trample the Son of God underfoot. Now, this Greek word that's translated trampled underfoot, it means to spurn, to reject with disdain, to trample something in the dirt as a sign that it is worthless to you. That, you know, if something was really valuable, you wouldn't trample it in the dirt. You know, you want to pick it up. You want to make sure that you hold on to it. So to trample the Son of God underfoot is really speaking about a rejection of Jesus. That you don't value who he is. You don't value what he's done for you. And the result of that is a rejection of him. The second way the author tells us about someone who sins willfully is they count the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified a common thing. Now, the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified is speaking of the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed on the cross. That's the blood that sanctified you and me. And so the author is saying, hey, this, it's, it's a willful sin when you consider the blood that Jesus sacrificed on the cross a common thing. Now, the Greek word translated common means ordinary, something that's shared by all. And for the Jews at that time, this word took a deeper meaning. It spoke of something that was unclean. So what the author is saying is the viewing of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, when you see it as just a common thing, just like any other blood that was sacrificed, believing that Jesus' blood is no different, no more sacred, no more powerful than the blood of animal sacrifices. Jesus' blood can do no more for you than the shed blood that animals did when they were sacrificed. That's a problem. The third way that someone sins willfully is they insult the spirit of grace. This Greek word translated insult means to treat with reproach, to insult, to outrage, and treat despitefully. You know, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of sin, to convict them of righteousness, to convict them of judgment, to point them to Jesus Christ. And when someone rejects Jesus, they don't value what Jesus has done for them. When they consider the blood of Jesus, it's a common thing that really does no more for them than the blood of animals. That's an insult to the Spirit of grace. The insult to the Spirit of grace who has led people from Judaism to Jesus, and they're considering leaving Jesus to go back to Judaism. What an insult that would be. So when the author of Hebrews speaks of someone sinning willfully, 
He's not speaking of some general willful sin that all of us commit. He's speaking about three specific sins. First, trampling the Son of God underfoot by rejecting Jesus. Second, counting Jesus' blood as a common thing, no different, no more powerful, no more sacred than the blood of animals. And third, insulting the Spirit of grace through a rejection of Jesus and his shed blood. Now, when you take a step back and you look at the bigger context of Hebrews, you look at the main thing that the author writes, the main reason why he writes to the initial readers of this letter, you know, it's clear that he's addressing the specific problems his initial readers were struggling with. They were considering departing from Jesus, departing from the sacrifice of Jesus, and going back to Judaism, going back to animal sacrifices. And if they did that, they would be guilty of these three specific sins. They'd be guilty of trampling Jesus underfoot by rejecting him. You know, if you depart from Jesus and go back to Judaism, guess what that is? It's a clear rejection of Jesus. They'd also be guilty of counting Jesus' shed blood on the cross a common thing, no different than animal sacrifices. If they lead Jesus and his sacrifice to go back to Judaism and animal sacrifices, what they're clearly declaring is, Jesus, your sacrifice is no better than these, and so we're fine with these. They'd also be guilty of insulting the spirit of grace. If they depart from Jesus back to Judaism, what an insult to the one who took them from Judaism to Jesus in the first place. So the author of Hebrews is not trying to make some general point about willful sin that can't be forgiven. He's making a very specific point about specific problems that the initial readers were dealing with, which is the fact that they were considering departing Jesus to go back to Judaism. And he reveals three specific sins that they will be guilty of if they follow through with this. Right now, it's more of that considering stage, but if they move forward to departing from Jesus, these are sins they will be guilty of, and the author wants to give them a real big, fat warning. Don't do it, because there's big problems if you do. So let's look at this warning with that in mind, with this understanding of what really he's kind of addressing and focusing on. Verse 26 and 27 says again, for if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Now, once you understand the context of this warning, you understand what the author is referring to when he says sins willfully, then what the author says actually makes a lot of sense with everything he's been saying up to this point in time. So when someone sins willfully, which we noted is ultimately speaking about departing from Jesus and his sacrifice to go to Judaism and animal sacrifices, when someone sins willfully after they receive the knowledge of the truth, which is the knowledge of what Jesus did as he sacrificed himself on the cross, the author is saying, well, now there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so what the author is saying is if Jesus' sacrifice for sin is rejected, there remains no other sacrifice that can cleanse you. No other sacrifice that can offer you forgiveness. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this. If this great way of salvation, this mightiest sacrifice of all is refused, no other sacrifice remains. See, if these Jewish believers, they depart from Jesus in the sacrifice of the cross to go back to Judaism and animal sacrifices, what the author wants them to understand is those animal sacrifices, they're not going to cleanse their sins. Those animal sacrifices are not going to bring them forgiveness. 
You see, what the author wants them and us to know is if you're going to make the basis of your salvation animal sacrifices, or you're going to make the basis of your salvation your own works, you're going to be judged based on that basis of which you seek to find salvation through. You see, Jesus' sacrifice for our sins doesn't just cleanse us from our sins. It doesn't just give us forgiveness from our sins. It also removes the judgment of God because of our sin. It protects us from God's judgments. So if you want to depart from relating to God through Jesus, depart from relating to God through Jesus' sacrifice, and start relating to God through Judaism and animal sacrifices, not only will you be putting yourself under sacrifices that do nothing for your sins, you're also going to be putting yourself back under the judgment of God. As the author puts it, under certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Now, the author wants to drive home this point about the judgment aspect of things, hoping that this will really resonate with the readers. And he drives this point home in verses 28 through 31. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the author wants to help them and us understand this warning about God's judgment by taking us back to the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, how did God judge his people? Well, under the Old Covenant, if someone rejected the law of Moses, if someone did something deserving of death, then based on the testimony of two or three witnesses, they'd be killed. There would be no mercy. God's judgment would be poured out on them for rejecting the law of Moses. So under the Old Covenant, there's no mercy. And based on that, the author asks a very important question in verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. The point the author is making is, hey, you guys came out of Judaism. You understand the judgment of God with no mercy upon those who do things that deserve death? Of how much worse is it for someone who's rejected the Son of God? If just breaking the command of God brings death, how much worse is it going to be? How much greater is your judgment? How much greater is the punishment going to be for someone who rejects the Son of God. And then he drives this warning home even more when he quotes two Old Testament passages from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 25 and 36. It says this, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Once again, he's speaking to people who knew the Old Testament, who came out of Judaism. Hey guys, I want to remind you, remember what it says in Deuteronomy? Remember where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay? Remember when God says, I will judge my people? Now the context of Deuteronomy chapter 32 is the fact that the nation of Israel has departed from God to worship idols. 
And through that, God is saying, my judgment is coming upon you because of what you've done. And God brings that judgment upon them because they departed from him to worship idols. And the author is using what they understood about Deuteronomy and how God worked under the old covenant for those who would depart from him to worship idols. And they say, hey, I'm using this as a warning to speak to you guys right now who are considering departing from Jesus to go back to Judaism. Recognize the judgment of God. You understand it under the old covenant. Well, guess what? It's there under the new covenant as well. If you reject Jesus, you depart from him, you go back to Judaism, then you are now under the judgment of God. And then he finishes this warning with something that he thinks will strike fear in the hearts of his readers, and it should. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Anyone who knew their Bible, anyone who knew the nations of, of, uh, around Israel who tried to come against God, and even the nation of Israel themselves who abandoned and rejected God at different times in their uh, nation's uh, history, recognized it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That God's judgment can be fierce. God's judgment can be harsh. But you know what? Each one of us are either going to fall into the hands of the living God who will judge us for our sins, or we're going to fall into the arms of a loving Savior who will save us from our sins. We're all going to fall into God, either his hands of judgment or his arms of love, and it's all dependent on what we do with Jesus. Whether we choose to accept him and believe in him and believe what he's done on the cross, if we do, then the arms of the loving Savior are there to embrace us and save us from our sins. And we reject that. We fall into the hands of a just God who is going to judge us for our sins. So the word of warning that the author gives is don't depart from Jesus and his sacrifice because if you do, there is no other sacrifice that can deal with your sins and God's judgment will be upon you. Now remember the main reason that these Jewish believers are even considering departing from Jesus is not because they're really, you know, oh, Jesus is not great and he's not that good and Judaism's so much better. I don't think that that's really at the heart of this. That's at the heart of this is their problem, which is what? They're being persecuted. And so they're considering departing from Jesus back to Judaism because they've been convinced that, you know what, if we go back to Judaism, since the Jews are the main ones per persecuting us, then you know what, we can avoid persecution. And so they're departing to escape persecution. And the author is aware of really kind of the main motive of this. And so he follows up this word of warning of you guys, if you do this, you need to understand how severe it would be to lead Jesus and the consequences that come with that. But now that I know that you're doing that because of persecution, let me follow up this word of warning with a word of encouragement and a word of hope. And both the word of encouragement and the word of hope really address their persecution. It addresses the thing that is driving them to a place where they're considering departing from Jesus in the first place. And the word of the encouragement that the author gives is in verse 32 and 34, says this. But recall the former days in which you, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle both of reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven." So hearing this word of the encouragement, the author wants them to look back. 
He wants them to remember what God has done for them to help them in their persecution in the past. Hey guys, look back and remember how you endured. Remember what God did for you in the past as you were persecuted. Recall the former days in which you were illuminated, speaking of uh, illuminated to the gospel, you endured a great struggle with suffering. You see, the present suffering that these believers were going through was not something new. You know, they had dealt with suffering before this. Before this letter was written, before these issues arose, they were those who not only dealt with suffering, but dealt with it in quite a good, godly way. And so the author wants them to remember how they suffered for Jesus in the past and how God helped them endure that suffering in the past. And it reminds them of two ways that they suffered for Jesus. First, they were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. And second, they had their goods plundered. So speak, people spoke horribly to them. People treated them horribly. People stole their things all because they were followers of Jesus. Now, the main reason the author brings this up concerning their suffering is not just to say, hey, remember how bad it was when you suffered? He brings up the suffering because he wants to remind them of how they responded. Guys, remember the suffering? But more importantly, remember how you responded to it in the past? You see, when they were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, they responded by becoming companions with other Christians, and they treated them with compassion. You know, that's how they met the author of Hebrews. We're not sure who the author of Hebrews is. Some believe it's Paul. But we know this, verse 34, you had compassion on me in my chains. Whoever the author was, he was most likely in prison for being persecuted for preaching the gospel, for living for Jesus. These Hebrew believers are also being persecuted, and they have compassion on the author, and that's how they first meet. Now, if you are being persecuted as a Christian, if you want to avoid that persecution, one of the ways to avoid it is steer clear of other Christians, especially outspoken Christians who are proclaiming the gospel, because if you associate yourself with those people, guess what? You're now a target just like they are. So if you want to avoid persecution, avoid connecting yourself with other believers. But notice that these Jewish believers, as they started to get persecuted, they didn't avoid other believers who were being persecuted. Actually, instead, they sought out other believers, became companions with them, and had compassion on them. And they did this with the author. It hit the author personally. He wants to remind them, hey, guys, I know how you used to respond to persecution because that's how we first met. I saw how you dealt with suffering. I saw how God helped you endure it. I saw how you made companions of others who were dealing with these things. And when their goods were plundered for following Jesus, notice the author tells us how they respond to that as well. They joyfully accepted it, knowing that they had a better and an enduring possession for themselves in heaven. Do you think that would be your response Someone knows that you're a Christian, they break into your house right now while you're at church and they steal everything that you have. Would you be like, you know what, uh, I'm going to joyfully accept that. They joyfully accepted being stolen from because they had a perspective that was very important. They knew they were storing up treasures in heaven. You know, one of the main things that enabled these Jewish believers early on in their persecution to endure it 
is because they kept a heavenly perspective. They understood that, yeah, things on earth are difficult for us. Things here on earth are are being taken from us. But they also understood that they had a better and an enduring possession for themselves in heaven. And that eternal perspective, that heavenly perspective, helped them to respond in the right way. You know, this is something we see with Paul as well. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, but, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul, like these Jewish believers, he suffered a lot of persecution. And he says, you know what? He didn't lose heart. And the reason that he doesn't lose heart is because of his perspective on persecution. And his perspective is given to us. For our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, when Paul compared what he was going through on this earth with what he would receive in heaven, all of a sudden that perspective helped him to say, you know what, it's worth it. All that I go through, all the suffering, all the persecution for Jesus Christ here on this earth is worth it in comparison to what's coming, to what I'm going to get, to what I'm going to receive, to the rewards I'm going to have. It's all worth it. That heavenly perspective was something that enabled him to continue to live for Jesus the way he should. And it's the same thing with these Jewish believers early on in their persecution. You know, they had that heavenly perspective. People stole stuff from them. Hey, we know we got stuff in heaven. We know we got rewards there, and we can joyfully accept that we had things taken from us. And the same can be true for you and I. If you want to properly deal with persecution, or just even with difficulties here on this earth, one of the best things to help you to do that is to have a heavenly perspective. You know, when you get your eyes focused on the persecution, you get your eyes focused on the problems, all of a sudden it becomes very, very difficult to endure. But you take your eyes off the problems, off the persecution, and you place them on Jesus and on the hope of heaven. And there's just a difference in our attitude, in our perspective, in our ability to endure things because we have this knowledge of I know what's coming. And as bad as this is, it's as bad as it'll ever be. And heaven's coming and Jesus is with me and I can continue to move forward that way. Do you know what? Sometimes we lose focus. We get our eyes focused on the problems and the persecution and the issues. And and when that happens, it's very, very difficult to endure. And you know what? We have kind of this roller coaster sometimes where we're doing really great. We're on the spiritual high. We're keeping our eyes on Jesus. And all of a sudden, something really bad happens. And boom, our eyes get focused on it. And we were doing well and enduring. We were doing well and living for Jesus. And then all of a sudden, we, we stop. And that's really what we see with these Jewish believers. Early on, they had this, you know, he's praising them. Remember the past? Remember how you guys dealt with this? It was so good. You did such a great job at enduring persecution, but they're not enduring it now. And I think one of their problems probably was that they have lost sight of the heavenly perspective. Lost sight of Jesus. Now their focus is just on the persecution and what they're going through. And because of that, they're not enduring the way that they once did and it's brought problems of drifting and doubting and declining and now the possibility of even departing from Jesus. 
You know, how quickly we can go from doing well with our struggles to doing poorly. It can be a very quick change. All it takes is some really big problem to land in our lap, and all of a sudden our focus goes directly to it. And we lose sight of Jesus, we lose sight of eternal things, and we can really start to have problems in how we respond. So the author, he recognizes this with the Jewish believers. He realizes what they once did and how they once did it better. And so he reminds them, hey guys, look back. I know right now you're not doing so well, but look back at how you used to respond to persecution. How did you deal with it in the past? Through God's strength, you endured it. Through God's strength, you lovingly came alongside of others like myself. Through God's strength, you joyfully accepted persecution, knowing what awaited you in heaven. And the point of this reminder is to encourage them to do in the present what you used to do in the past. You guys know what to do. You've done it before. All you got to do is do it now. I just want to remind you of how successful you were in the past so that you can know it's possible in the present. God enabled you in the past. He can enable you right now. So the word of encouragement the author gives is remember how you endured your persecution in the past with joy. God can help you repeat that in the present. You know, for us, it's always good to be reminded of God's past faithfulness. It's good to be reminded of how God has helped us through struggles and difficulties. Because what that does, it just says, you know what? He can do that in the present. I'm always encouraged as I just remember what God has done. Because there's always new problems, always new issues, and a lot of them aren't new problems. A lot of them aren't new issues. I've dealt with them before, and I can look back and say, you know what? When I had this problem before, this is what God did. This is how God was faithful. This is how God strengthened me. This is how God got me through it. And there's this encouragement that if he did it then, I should be confident he can do it again now. And that's what the author wants this word of encouragement to do for these believers. And so he starts with a word of warning of where they're presently at in their relationship with God. Then he gives them this word of encouragement of where they used to be in the past at in their relationship with God. And now he's going to finish with a word of hope of where they need to be in the future in their relationship with God. Verses 35 through 39 says this. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, he, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. In this word of hope, the author is encouraging these believers and us really to do three things in order to move forward in their relationship with Jesus. The first thing the author says to move forward is in verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. See, this is really one of the problems that they had. They lost confidence in the promised rewards of God. And the reason they lost that confidence is because of all the persecution they were going through. That's a common response of us. We go through difficulty and hardship, and it's hard to remember. It's hard to stay focused on rewards and blessings and promises of God because all we're seeing in our life is heartache and difficulty and issues that we don't want to have to address. And so it's hard to stay focused on the positive things when these negative things are hitting us so hard. And so they lost confidence. 
Confidence in God's promise. Confidence in what he said he would do. Confidence in the hope of heaven. And that confidence also caused them to lose their endurance. And so the first thing the author really is encouraging them and us to do in order to move forward in our relationship with Jesus is have confidence in the promised rewards of God in heaven, which will help give us endurance to live for God here on this earth. When you are confident in what God has promised you, it definitely helps you to endure. The confidence of heaven helps endurance here on this earth. The second thing the author tells us to do in order to move forward is in verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Another important thing for us to understand if we're going to move forward in our relationship with God, it was important for these initial readers as well, is that Jesus could come back at any moment. You know, it's interesting to me because it's been over 2,000 years, but with every single generation that has ever lived, the heart of God is that we would live with a mindset that Jesus' return is imminent. He always wants us to have that. Even if he knows he's not going to return in our lifetime, he wants us to live with the mindset that he could come back at any moment. You see, when you live ready for Jesus' return, it changes the way you live. It changes what you prioritize. I mean, if you believe that Jesus would come back tomorrow, what would be different about your life? What would be different about your priorities? What would be different about what you're living for? I hope that you know, there would be some significant priorities of, I'm going to make sure Jesus is the most important thing in living for him and reaching people for him because he could come back at any moment would be our heart with that. The second thing the author tells us to do and to move forward in our relationship with God is just to be ready for the coming of Jesus. And I think a good question to ask ourselves is, am I living in a way that's ready for Jesus' return? If Jesus showed up today, would you be ashamed of his coming or would you be like, oh, I've been waiting, I've been living for you, I've been ready for it, I'm so excited that we have this time together. The third thing the author tells us to move forward in our relationship with Jesus is in verses 38 and 39. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Once again, the author is quoting an Old Testament passage. He does this over and over to appeal to those who came out of Judaism, who knew the Old Testament. And he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4, which tells us the just shall live by faith. Now, it's interesting to me that this little verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. And what I found interesting is if you look up each of these times that it's quoted, is really there's three main words in this you know, quotation, just live and faith. And when you look at the three different times that they're used in the New Testament, there's a different one of those words that's really emphasized to fit the context of what's being said. In Romans 1.17, it's all about faith. And so the emphasis when it's quoted, the just shall live by faith. The author wants us to really focus on the faith aspect of it. In Galatians 3.11, he's all talking about being justified. And so the word just is the focus. The just shall live by faith. And then here in Hebrews 10, 38, the emphasis on the word live. He wants us to know, well, how should you and I live? In light of persecution and difficulties and problems, live by faith. Faith in Jesus. Not drawing back to Judaism or works-based relationship with Jesus. Instead, 
live your lives with faith in Jesus, as the author says, to the saving of our souls. So the third thing the author wants us to do as we move forward in our relationship with Jesus is to live your life by faith in Jesus. And when you take all three of those things together, you get the word of hope that the author wants to give us. Have confidence in the promised rewards of God. Be ready for the coming of Jesus and live your life by faith in Jesus. Now the word of warning, the word of encouragement, the word of hope, I think it's a great challenge for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And they're all intertwined with that. Remember the warning is don't leave the sacrifice. Remember what Jesus did in the past to help you live for that. And he's going to do the same in the future. And I think it's just a great warning for us. You see, in a moment, we're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice by partaking of communion together. And as we remind ourselves of the amazing sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, you know, I really hope that it's a reminder as well to never depart from Jesus. You know, as we look at all that we've been given, all that he has done, the wonderful demonstration of love that we would think to ourselves, I will never leave that. I would never depart that. I would never depart him. What a fool I would be to do so. But also, as we look back at the cross, hopefully it's a reminder of all the things in the past. That itself is a great demonstration of love. That itself is a wonderful thing in the past of what Jesus has done. But let it remind you even more of all the blessings that have come with the cross, with the sacrifice, what he's done for us in the past. And hopefully it reminds us of our great need for him also in the present and in the future. That as we look back to the cross, let the warning, let the encouragement, let the hope be intertwined with that to help us in our relationship with the Lord. So I'm going to have the worship team come on up.